0: Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest or new with us, welcome to our church. We're excited to be here together to worship. Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 7. If you're using a Bible from the few in front of you, you're on page 842. And trivia fact, but actually helpful for getting a sense, this is in the book of Mark. In this book of the Bible, the longest single interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees. So in Mark's book, this is maybe a particularly important text to understand what Jesus would say to people who consider themselves religious. Um, And that's very helpful whether we are religious, are people of faith, well then we wanna know what Jesus would say to us. Or frankly, if you're as a guest and you're not religious, it's maybe equally helpful Because it may be that Jesus' approach to these things is a little different than you might have thought. Either way, let's see what God has for us in his word. Would you join me? Let me read. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray as we come to this text that that you would bless us to get to the heart of the matter and that having gotten to the heart of the matter, this passage, that it would do what you say and declare, which is that it would change our hearts. We pray it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So for several years in my very first ministry job at this church, a couple decades ago as a pastoral intern, one of the things they assigned the pastoral intern to do was to start a Bible study for summer and Christmas break, basically a Bible study for students away at college when they came home. And one of my friends kindly permitted us to use his basement, a little living room down there for this Bible study. It was a heated basement, but like most basements in the winter part, it got a little nippy. Had a fireplace, and so we would build a big old fire in the fireplace for the Christmas part of this. And one year he needed to be gone for a week. So he left us the wood and the kindling and the newspaper and all the rest and handed me a key. The next week we're there. Um, I'm talking to a student in the driveway. And two other guys show up, and they say, hey, can we help? And I say, sure, why don't you go on in and light up the fire? Unaware that they did not know what a damper was. Do you know a damper, the thing that, like, closes the chimney so cold air can't get down? So these guys walk in. They stack it all up. They light her up and let it rip. I'm standing in the driveway, and a few moments later, I hear the smoke detector begin to shriek out its warning. I look and see smoke billowing up the stairs from my friend's basement through his kitchen, I go running in, down the stairs, and then wipe out completely on the landing because one of the two men is sitting there trying to take the battery out of the smoke detector. (laughs) And I pick myself up, I'm, what are you doing? And he goes, well, uh, the beeping was distracting me and I couldn't think well, so I'm trying to get the beeping to stop so I can think about what to do. And I'm like, the smoke detector is not the problem here. Get me a wet towel, quick. You know, the only, the only redeeming thing about crazy stuff that goes wrong in your life if you're a pastor is someday it can be a good sermon illustration. <laughs> um, so, what was the problem? The problem was, he was after the wrong thing. I mean, he was trying to fix and silence a smoke detector, unaware that the real problem was the fire that was rapidly spewing smoke through my friend's basement. And in our passage this morning, Jesus basically says that hearts are the same way. We can have a heart that's on fire and not on fire in a good way. And we're busy running around trying to silence the smoke detector instead of deal with the real raging problem underneath things. We're doing something, but we do the wrong thing. And what Jesus says to us this morning is that we really, the problem we have is not with our hands, it's with our hearts. the problem we have is not with our hands, it's with our hearts. And Jesus says, if you want to know how a change actually happens, change actually happens not outside in, but inside out. And that's really the two things we'll look at this morning, is change from the outside in versus change from the inside out. Um, Let's start with the first, change from the outside in. This is really what you see in verses 1 through 13 of the passage. So if you haven't closed your Bible, or even if you have, open back up. Um, It starts with this question about washing and eating with defiled hands. And you may be thinking to yourself, what's Jesus got against washing your hands? I tell my kids that before every meal. I mean, understand this is actually a technical term for the Pharisees. It's a ritual cleanness. Based on their religious rituals. It's not about hygiene. So, likewise, it's not like when your kid comes back and they manage to somehow wash their hands thoroughly in 1.8 seconds flat, and you have to be like, go back, try again. It's not that they are unhealthy, it's that they're eating with hands that are ritually and religiously unclean. These were religious traditions that the Pharisees and Judaism had developed over the years, not things explicitly required in the Bible but things that had emerged and raised up to the level of a religious obligation anyway. And in that sense, washing of hands is just an example. It's an example of a broader tendency, tendency to elevate traditions that we come up with to the level of religious duty, even though they were man-made, not God's command. And now here's the thing, here's the crucial thing to notice in this passage for us, It's this, this isn't just a way of living out their faith. It has become a substitute for real faith. This isn't just a way of living out their faith. It's not just some pattern that they decided to adopt that's neutral. It has actually become the replacement for faith. It becomes the enemy of faithfulness to God. Do you notice how quickly Jesus sort of amps up the conflict in this one? They ask a question, and he does exactly what you train people not to do if you do conflict resolution. He immediately just pours gas on the fire, to switch my analogy. He just gets in there, and look at verse 9. Y'all have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God. If that's not enough, he calls them hypocrites. You know, this is usually not the way to damp down conflict. It's like Jesus just has no time for this discussion. Why? Why does Jesus deal with it that way? Well, verse 8 tells us. Because in his understanding, this isn't just some way to do faith. In his understanding, this is actually a departure from faith entirely. Look at verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he quotes Isaiah the prophet, right, after calling him hypocrites. Isaiah was dealing in his time, hundreds of years before, with a nation that was religiously very observant. There was all sorts of ceremony, all sorts of tradition, all sorts of offering, but Isaiah the prophet had said was entirely far from God in its heart. It was a nation full of religious observance that was basically apostate. And so Jesus, in quoting Isaiah here, says, You Pharisees are just like Israel of old, doing all the religious stuff and deserving nothing more than to be judged. That's heavy stuff, right? Why does Jesus amp it up? Because in his mind, this is not how people work out their faith. It's become a replacement for their faith, even though they don't realize it. When we work outside in, what happens is it it almost always, not always, but almost always, it starts with good intentions. It's people who rightly say, I want to work God's will and his law and his word out in all of life. And so it starts with an attempt to say, let me be serious about doing what God wants. But so often it ossifies, it hardens, it becomes a moral code, not a life transforming outworking of grace. And once it has ossified and become that hardened moral code, Lord help you if you cross it. It will get you drummed out of the community. It will get you what it got Jesus, which is a tag. Here's how it happened then. People got into their own rules, how they worked out their faith, and they lost sight of what God really wanted. So Jesus teaches it by example. If you look down in verses um, verses 9 and following, they had the need, which is right. We even just announced something like this. They needed to give money to God's work. Well, somebody might therefore say, I offer this asset, maybe a financial resource, to God. It is korban. That's what korban meant, is offered off to God. And you'd think, what's bad about that, right? I mean, churches need money to keep functioning. We just announced about the budget. But apparently, Jesus says in these verses, sometimes God would be the one who thinks there's something wrong about that. How did that happen? Well, it happened because you could offer the thing to God, say it's declared to God, but then not transfer it for a time. And in that time, suppose somebody's parents got deathly poor, something went terribly wrong. Well, the Pharisaic law of the time said it doesn't matter what the human need is. The statement has been made. The transfer is irrevocable. You cannot use that money even to support this basic human need of your parents. To which Jesus says, don't you realize what you just did? You took your regulations and your rules, the way you worked out something that at least originally could have been good, shouldn't you give money to God, and did it in such a way that you fundamentally missed God's heart. He says, you haven't even followed the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So look what happened. Maybe it was intended to be a good thing, but by the time it becomes a basic function of religious duty, it's become something that violates God's very heart. If we execute our faith in a way that works out to cause us to ignore God's basic commandments, his basic principles, Jesus says that working from the outside in, beware, that might actually become a replacement for real faith. If that weren't enough, it turns out that people started abusing this. They found it to be a way around supporting their parents. Our sinful hearts are endlessly creative and human regulation becomes a means to actually ignore what God wants. See, when it comes to human-created regulations that go around our faith, two things go wrong again and again. Number one, those human rules go beyond what God wants. I have no doubt this Corban regulation started as an attempt to live out God's word fully and faithfully, <clears throat> to be sacrificial in generosity, but before long it becomes full of human additions. It's no longer a faithful application of God's word, but it becomes a series of human-based behavior codes. And the people advocating it can't even see the difference. And number two, because of that, it becomes in the end a replacement for authentic Christianity. A human set of regulations has replaced authentic worship of God. They're doing, saying, acting the right things, but in a way that ignores the rest of God's world and his word And in the end means they're doing the wrong things. People having ultimately fooled themselves into elevating their desires above God's. We end up making human systems that live out the letter of the law, but ignore its spirit, that find clever ways to get around it. Y'all, parenting so easily devolves into this. I'm sure mine has many times. Instead of what we ought to be trying to do, which is to nurture hearts in our kids that will therefore sort of spontaneously do what ought, it turns into behavior modification, forgetting the ultimate real goal. Um, Government so easily devolves into this, an attempt to do good in the public sphere that becomes just controlling how other people behave. Business codes of conduct devolve into this, an attempt to treat all people fairly and equitably that becomes just sort of a behavior modification nose counting. And the thing is, faith also so easily devolves into this. Um, Charles Dickens, for you literary types, was just a master at creating these sort of almost caricature minor characters in his novels. In Great Expectations, you meet Georgiana Pocket. She's a spinster who Dickens calls an indigestive woman who called her rigidity religion. Who called her rigidity religion. And she is obedient and quote-unquote faithful through the whole novel, and she spends her whole time hating the narrator of the book. We can live lives of rules and disciplines and outwardly pious behavior, but not have God's heart in the least. And church can be so much like that, right? Churches, all of them, very quickly create activity and behavior codes that are implicitly there, even though they're human codes. There are ways you act, there are things you do, there are things you don't do, and if you cross it, even though you didn't realize you crossed it the moment you do, you realize, I didn't do what was expected here. This is why it's so very important, and this is why Jesus amps it up so quickly. It's so very important for us to be careful that what we require of ourselves and others is really what God asks, not something that we've created because we're always tempted to create cultural patterns that end up replacing true biblical faith. And here's the huge personal implication of this. It means you can look and even be very religious and be far from God's heart. That we can look and even be very religious and be far from God's heart. It's incredibly easy for the things, the rules, the patterns to actually displace True, authentic following of Jesus. And even if you've been in church for many years, maybe even in leadership, maybe your whole life, well, remember the Pharisees were the best of the best religiously. They'd grown up in synagogue. They knew the word. They knew the law. They did exactly the right prayers. They were respected by everybody for it. They lived a careful, pious, good, solid, respectable life. And in verses 6 to 9 in our text, Jesus said they were basically apostates. It's easy to live in religion world, to be in religion world, even to lead in it and not actually understand the heart of God. So if you've grown up in a Christian context as long as you can remember, let me just ask the question, do you still need to be converted? Now, here's the huge social implication of this, by the way, too. Not all Christian movements are really Christian. Just because you hear somebody proclaiming himself or herself on the airwaves as a spokesman for Christianity doesn't mean that person really is. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of their day. To everybody's impression, they were genuine Judaism, and God says, no, they're not. Jesus says they were false exemplars. They weren't real faith, even though they sure looked like it from the outside. And what this means is, is it people who say they're following God? More than that, even people who think they're following God sometimes aren't. So if you're here as one of our non-Christian guests this morning, when you hear all this stuff on the airwaves from Christians, just be aware that not everybody who says they represent Jesus really does. If you look at things that are full of hate and spite and you shake your head and you think, how in the world could they fundraise and act off that? Well, just realize Jesus would be unhappy with a lot of stuff that's done in his name. If you've deconstructed your faith, you may actually not be walking away from Jesus. You might be walking away from a caricature. Don't center on the voices of people who say they stand for Jesus. Center on Jesus himself. Do business with him. And once you do, then let him do business with you. That's the implication of this whole outside in. If you're here as a non-Christian this morning... What you're trying to fix, whatever it is, is never going to be enough. We need Jesus for life change, not behavior change, not just to fix the outside forces that oppress us, whether they're personal or social, chemical or behavioral or mental or anything else. You can get sober, it's not going to be enough. You could eliminate your debt, it won't be enough. You could find a spouse it won't be enough until our hearts are changed by jesus we're just trying to fix the wrong thing we're just like my friend trying to take the battery out of the smoke detector but christian realize we make the same mistake we think if we can fix all those outside things if we can make our world what it should be that it will save us if we can keep our kids from the wrong influences they'll turn out fine well no it doesn't and no it's not that simple We're not saved by making a Christian world. We're saved by our hearts being changed. And on that, I'm not on any pietist, anti-culturalist, or fundamental rant when I say that. We should be engaged in our world. We should be trying to straighten the things that sin has twisted. But remember, our hope is not making a Christian society. Our hope is in Jesus making us new. Attempts to change, either to change others or to change ourselves from the outside in always fail. And Jesus tells us why, verses 14 to 23, he turns to change from the inside out. So look down at verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus turns to another set of religious laws of the day, what are called the food laws. So we're still thinking about the same basic question, what does it mean to be right with God? Judaism of the time had food laws based on Old Testament regulations in the Pentateuch, and Jesus resets our understanding of those laws. Those laws had a and a purpose, but Jesus says that the people of his day had missed that point. They started to think that rigidly keeping these food laws would make them right with God. And to sort of tear that apart, Jesus does just a basic biology lesson. He says, hey, when you put food in, which organ does it go into, your stomach or your heart? He says, it goes into your stomach and then it comes back out. In other words, it's not going to transform your heart. Jesus Jesus is not out to abolish these laws, we'll come to that in a second, but he does say they are now fulfilled. This is why, by the way, we don't follow kosher. Those laws had a point and a purpose, but they could never make the Old Testament or New Testament people right with God because they weren't supposed to. Their whole point was to show us that we needed to be made right with God, not to actually do the making right. Outside in, righteousness always fails, and here's why. Because sin is inside us, and because it's indelible. Inside us. The problem isn't out there, the problem's in here. You know the sort of trope turn to every horror movie? The call's coming from inside the house, right? Look at verses 20 to 23. Jesus went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The fire of evil still burns inside us. Cleaning up the outside isn't really fixing the problem. I don't know if you know the classic 1968 film, The Lion in Winter. Catherine Hepburn, is the queen, speaking to her sons right after she thinks she's lost, listen to what she says. She says, "'Oh, my piglets, we are the origins of war, not history's forces, nor the times, nor justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. We carry it like syphilis inside.'" It doesn't fix things to look good on the outside. That's no better than my student trying to pull the battery out of the smoke detector. And that sin that's inside us, Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's indelible. It's not something we can just fix by controlling outside factors. In these verses, um, Jesus gives us 13 things that come from the heart. Six of them deal with our behaviors. Seven of them deal with our attitudes. In other words, if you just try to change behavior, you're not getting deep enough. It's more complicated than just following the rules and the letter of the law. In fact, we can't not just murder. Jesus says we must not be angry or jealous of our neighbor. We can't just avoid adultery. We have to put to death every envy and inclination that can lead us into lust. The people of Jesus' day looked up to the Pharisees because they thought they took the law so seriously. Jesus says they don't take the law nearly seriously enough. To truly keep it, we can't just keep the letter of the law. We can't just refrain from the actions. He says we need to keep it in our motives, in our attitudes, in our mind, even before the thoughts become actions. And when that's the bar. Which of us could possibly come out unstained? Shakespeare explored this dramatically and elegantly with Macbeth. So if you need to brush up your Shakespeare real quick, Macbeth is the story of of Macbeth himself, who's received this prophecy that he will become king of Scotland. And he and his wife, Lady Macbeth, take this to heart and to actions and decide to execute that prophecy themselves by basically executing and murdering a lot of people. And he does become king of Scotland at great cost and expense. And in the second half of the play, both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are racked by the guilt of what they've done and the stain upon them because of that. Until you get to the iconic scene where she is madly scrubbing her hands, trying to remove the stain of guilt. But no matter how clean she gets the outside of her hands, the spot still remains. She sees the stain of her guilt. And I dare say, every one of us walks in here this morning with spots on our hands. Other people can't see them. Our hands are clean from the outside, but we know a feeling of shame and guilt that sits here that we see it even if others don't. It's things we've done that we think if people only knew and we live in the shame of those things. Sometimes it's things that have been done to us And we live in the feelings, whether right or wrong, of shame that, well, and we can scrub and we can wash and we can clean up pretty and look good on the outside, and yet still in the end, we're just there with Lady Macbeth saying, out, out, damn spot. Every one of us needs to be cleansed from the inside out, not just from the outside in. In other words, we don't need a band aid. We don't need a change in diet. We need heart surgery. Even past that, we don't just need heart surgery because our hearts aren't clean. We need somebody to give us a full heart transplant, a new heart. But how do we get it? Well, to be honest, Jesus doesn't spell out the answer in this passage. I can't point you to a verse in Mark 7 that says, Here's the answer. I think Mark, following Jesus, wants to let it linger a little bit, let the question hang. But he does give us just a little pointer, a little thing to point us in the right direction. It's in verse 19, that little parenthetical. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, that's a comment that was good news to Mark's readers. And if we understand how, it can actually be good news to us. Let me show you how. Um, This comment tells us that Jesus came to fulfill God's law and keep it perfectly for us in God's place, in our place. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very careful to say that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus means in that statement is that the law was never meant to be the end in itself. It was always the means to the end. The Pharisees and scribes had turned it into the point, but the law was always there to show us our inability to keep it and to point us to the person who did. The law was like a bunch of road signs, but if you're following the road signs, you eventually get to the destination. And once you get to the destination, you don't need to stare at the signs anymore because you've gotten to the place they point. Jesus says he is the one to whom all the road signs point, And Jesus came to fulfill the law. Here's how that's good news for Mark's audience. It's pretty much universally acknowledged that Mark is writing to a Roman audience, And if you're Roman and you've been reading this book along with us, so to speak, and you've gotten this far and you're starting to understand who this guy Jesus really is, the question that's going to naturally come to your mind is going to be, oh my goodness, then if I follow him, do I need to go start doing all those things the Jews do? You know, because, I mean, I'm 49, I'm 49 years behind on building up the bank and keeping the rules and everything else. And in this, Mark points to those people who are Roman and says, no, you don't have to start following all these laws because their whole point was to point to Jesus. You don't have to become non-Roman. You don't have to leave your culture to become a follower of Jesus. You need to stay right where you are as a Roman and let Jesus transform you and then your culture inside out. You don't have to step out of your culture to become a Christian. And then Mark tells us then the same thing. Becoming a Christian is not leaving everything you've known. It is in some senses. It's leaving our sin. But culturally, you don't cease being from wherever you are and whoever you are. Instead, you let Jesus step in and transform it inside out. And what that is is good news. How does he do it? Well, by the end of this book of Mark, you find out in chapter 15, when Jesus is crucified, Mark says that the curtain of the temple was torn into top to bottom. The law that separated people from God, the law that said we were unclean and therefore no longer right to enter God's presence was no longer necessary. When Jesus declares all foods clean, he's saying that we all have access to God. He's kept the law in our place so we can draw near to God and he can remove our stains. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he frees us from sin and he gives us that new heart, you can be washed clean inside out if he's your Lord and Savior. So final thing, last thing, a quick question. How do I know if I'm working outside in or inside out? I mean, after all, the Pharisees in this passage think they're doing the right thing. They're deceived, even though they've missed the point, they don't realize they have, so how do I know if I've missed the point? Well, let me suggest four things sort of diagnostic from this passage, just working our way back through the passage. Number one, verses one to four. Do I find myself just doing, doing, doing? And by that, I mean this. We're all busy. This is D.C., trust me, I know, I get it. And if you have a bunch of kids, you're just being a school bus driver and trying to get them to all the various places. But but when it comes to your faith, are you just doing, doing, doing because you really think if I don't do it, God might love me less. Do you think if you miss your quiet time that somehow God loves you less? Well, if I find myself doing, doing, doing in that sense, especially in the things of faith, that can actually be a tip-off that I might be doing outside in Christianity. Number two, now moving down to verses 5 to 12. Am I letting my mission distract me from having the character of Jesus? Have I found myself with a calling, whether public or private, that's edged out living in a Christ-like way? The Pharisees had turned their mission into something that meant they ignored the basics like the fifth commandment. Well, have I used my mission to excuse ignoring the very heart of God? If we've taken of working out our religious system in a way that seems to be an appropriate engagement of society, but then that seems to permit us to slander and trash and act with reckless anger or anything else towards somebody on the other end of the spectrum? Well, then we've gone too far. Jesus says the second of the two greatest commandments is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do we excuse our own sin? Do we ignore the clear commandment of God? Well, if so, I might have slipped into working outside in. Um, Three, now skipping down just a little bit further, um, do I think versus about 14 to 19 that controlling the inputs can protect me or that can protect my family and my kids? Now understand you don't let your five-year-old watch HBO, or at least I hope you don't, but don't think that keeping off HBO or the internet or anything else is going to ultimately protect either your child or yourself. What's our fundamental effort? It's in turning the whole of our hearts towards God. Not just making a, rule where, a world where everybody else obeys the rules so we feel comfortable. If we're trying to do that, we might just be living outside in. And finally, fourth, and maybe most importantly from verses 20 to 23, simply ask the question, what's coming out of my heart? I mean, understand we all have moments, but we are people whom Jesus has given new hearts. Hearts that produce the fruit of the Spirit. Here's Paul's list of that from Galatians 5. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, Paul writes, there is no law. When your guard's down, when the TV makes you angry, when you're not watching your behavior goes. what's coming out? Jesus says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's pray. God, what we asked you at the beginning was that you would get us to the heart of the matter. What we ask now is that you would take that matter to our hearts. That you would give us the grace to see you more clearly, but then in doing that, to see ourselves more clearly. And we really do want to follow you, God. And we really do want to have hearts that are fully yours. Um, So help us in our weakness. Forgive us in our sins. Build us up in your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.